Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are wrapping up our series in the book of Philippians. We'll be looking at chapter four, and today's episode is entitled The Paradox of Philippians. One of the most famous verses in all of the Bible is Philippians 4.13. It reads, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, when I hear this verse, I am reminded of a story that took place in the year 2000 at the Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia. I watched the women's high dive gold medal competition where the 12 best women in the world at high diving gathered together to try and prove who was the best among them. In the top 12 was a bit of an underdog story. This woman was doing very well despite the fact that she had a very severe foot injury that many people viewed would hamper her ability to dive. But there she was in the top 12 diving for Olympic gold. Before the competition began, the commentator said it was a nice story that she was in the top 12 and she should really give herself a pat on the back for making it this far, but she had no shot at winning the gold medal. So this diver got up and she executed her first dive and it went quite well. Then she got to her second dive, her third dive. There are six dives in this competition. By her fourth dive, she was in first place and the commentators were losing their mind. I can't believe it, they said. How is this possible? This particular diver then took the place for her fifth dive and nailed it. There was only one dive left to go, and as long as there wasn't a catastrophe, she would win the Olympic gold. She got up on the high dive platform, took a deep breath, then ran and dove off the platform and executed a near-perfect dive. The crowd went wild. The announcers went bonkers. Everyone was so excited for this woman who had overcome this physical limitation. They gave her her gold medal, her national anthem played, and a reporter immediately went up to her afterwards and said, tell us, how did you overcome this injury and win a gold medal today? And the diver looked right at the reporter and she quoted Philippians 4.13. She said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I remember watching this as a 17-year-old and thinking to myself, huh, that's strange. Because in this group of 12 of the world's elite divers, there was only one winner and there were 11 losers. Which means that for one person, this verse worked, which is she could do all things through Christ who strengthened her. But for the 11 losers, well, did Christ not strengthen them? Did they not have enough faith to win a gold medal at the Olympic Games in Sydney? Now, it's here that someone may say, well, the 11 losers didn't have as much faith or the same faith that this gold medalist had with her God. To which I would respond by asking a question. Why are we even diving at all? This is a competition to determine who the best diver is not to determine who is the most faithful. And if God somehow intervenes and overrides this diving competition with a gorilla faith competition, well, then what does that actually say about God? 
Now imagine for a moment that I took Philippians 4.13 very literally and very seriously all at the same time. And I told you that the Olympic Games in Tokyo are happening next summer and I want to show the world how great God is. To prove that I trust that Philippians 4.13 is true and that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I believe that if I have enough faith, I can train and pray and then eventually qualify for and win the men's 100-meter dash at the Olympic Games next year. What would you say to me? Would you say, Craig, well, I mean, the Bible says that you can do all things, and that's a thing, so it can be done. And then you watch me run the 100 meters in about 17.8 seconds, and you say, oh, I don't think that's what this verse means. Maybe it should read, I can do most things through Christ who strengthens me. In 1988, the American men's basketball team lost to the Soviet Union on a blown referee call, and the Americans were angry. So angry that they got the Olympic Committee to overturn their rules that only amateurs could compete in the Olympic Games, and that led to the 1992 Dream Team, which many people consider to be the greatest basketball team ever assembled. On this team, there was Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, David Robinson. It was a ridiculous team, right? And we assembled this team in an effort to embarrass the world to show that these are our best players and we are far better at basketball than the rest of the world. So the Dream Team was unveiled in an Olympic qualifying match in 1992 and they played against the Cuban men's national team and it was a thrashing. The Americans won 136 to 57. Now it's here that a reporter went up to Miguel Gomez, the coach of the Cuban men's national team, and asked him what he was going to take away from this match against the 1992 Dream Team. And Miguel Gomez responded by saying, we have a saying in our country, you can't cover the sun with your finger. Now the way that most Christians understand Philippians 4.13, they would say, no, 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 Miguel Gomez, you can actually beat this team if you play them again. If you just have a little more practice, a little more focus, and a lot more faith, then you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. To which I picture Jesus Christ parting the clouds, interfering in this conversation and saying, actually, you're reading that verse wrong. That's not what this verse means, and it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> I tell you these three stories about the high dive, about me competing for the 100-meter dash, and the dream team versus Cuba. Because when Christians talk about Philippians 4.13, they often talk about the ability to achieve remarkable physical feats. Not only that, but they always talk about Philippians 4.13 in a competitive sense, where there's a winner and there's a loser. But what I hope these stories have shown you is that Philippians 4.13 is problematic in a gold medal context. And when we take this verse and we put it into a gold medal context, it actually works against the very thing that Paul, who wrote Philippians, was asking people to consider. So with that in mind, I'd like for us to return to Philippians 4 and read the verses that lead up to Philippians 4.13. Because what I've found is that when I read the whole chapter, the context drastically changes 
what Philippians 4.13 is, even though the words are the same. Now, just a quick recap from the previous two sermons in this series. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi from a jail cell. He is writing this after being on his third missionary journey. He has been kicked out of towns. He has been rejected by the religious establishment, as well as most state establishments he runs into. So Paul is wasting away in jail. He is unsure of whether he'll ever get out and what his future holds. When all of a sudden, a care package with money and food arrives from the church in Philippi with a note and a message that says that they miss him, they love him, and they support him, even in this dark time. Paul is overwhelmed with gratitude. And so he sits down in a jail cell to reply to this gracious act of the church of Philippi by writing Philippians, which is a thank you letter to the congregation who remembered him. So Philippians 4 is the last chapter in that thank you letter. And in verse 4, he writes these words. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, then think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A quick recap. The words that Paul uses from Philippians 4 to Philippians 12 are words like rejoice and gentleness and thanksgiving and peace and praise and honorable and content. Now, these words have very little to do with gold medal competitions. Yes, the Olympic Games are about peace, but as far as being in the competition, there are very few athletes who say, you know what I need a little bit more of to win this match? Peace. <laughs> Doesn't really work that way. But consider what Paul is actually writing here. He's writing at a very dark, uncertain time of his life where everything he's been working for has gone belly up. And yet, in the midst of all that, in a jail cell behind bars, he writes about how he's found an ability to be content in every circumstance, including being in jail. The ability to find contentment in a jail cell requires an immense amount of faith. 
And while that may sound impossible to you and me, it's here that Paul responds to you and me and our concerns by saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, when everything falls apart, Paul says, I found a way to glue the pieces back together. And that has taken faith on my part. With that in mind, let's return to the Olympic high dive competition in 2000 in Sydney, Australia, where the winner is standing on a podium with a gold medal around her neck saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we say to ourselves, oh, no, 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 no. The winner shouldn't be the one who's reciting Philippians 4.13. The losers should be the ones who are reciting Philippians 4.13. Let's imagine for a moment a hypothetical situation where a reporter who lacks tack approaches one of the losers at the women's high dive competition. The reporter takes a microphone, shoves it in the loser's face and says, so you just lost. You spent every waking moment of the past decade trying to win a gold medal. How are you going to find contentment in your life? after you failed at these Olympic Games. Imagine if the loser responded by saying, well, I believe I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now the reporter might respond by saying, that seems ridiculous and impossible. You can't find contentment after you've lost. You will not be introduced as gold medalist for the rest of your life. How on earth could you find meaning? in your broken existence. To which the loser would respond by saying, I guess I just have to trust that God will make something out of this mess of my life. And we read the words of Paul where he is telling us about how he has learned to be content with whatever he has. And we often forget that he is sitting in a jail cell with a very uncertain, frightening future ahead of him. And it's so easy for us to forget all of that context that went into these words. This happens mostly because religion likes to highlight its own success. And we go to these cathedrals, we go to these churches where a pastor usually stands up a few feet above the congregation, literally on a pedestal, and reads Philippians 4.13, looking at you and saying, you can be a success story much like Paul because of the faith that Paul had. But what churches rarely, if ever, talk about is the fact that Paul was a pariah, and the Christian church held him at an arm's length. The Jewish synagogues held him at an arm's length. The state ended up executing him. So religion often equates Paul with this just incredible success story, but Paul didn't live that. Instead, Paul writes these words from a jail cell, and he writes to people who have lost Olympic competitions. He writes to people who have made a mess of things. He writes to people who don't have the answers. He writes to people who are broken and uncertain, who have just received a diagnosis And when he writes, he's found a way to be content in all circumstances. He's not standing on a pile of cash surrounded by just 
enormous success, he's broken. Paul wants you to know that he knows how you feel. And when he writes Philippians 4, he wants you to know that when you don't have the answers and when things go wrong, he knows how you feel. If you have ever been to a funeral of someone you love, well, then Paul knows how you feel. If you have ever prayed to God for something that was unquestionably good and that prayer went unanswered, well, Paul knows how you feel. If you have ever been overwhelmingly disappointed in yourself, then Paul knows how you feel. If you have ever been betrayed, then Paul knows how you feel. If religion has ever turned its back on you, rejected you, condemned you, then Paul knows how you feel. Paul empathizes with you as long as you are willing to empathize with him. In her book, Everything Here is Beautiful, Mira Lee on the dedication page writes about empathy better than just about anyone I have ever heard write about empathy before. She writes, empathy, because the commonality among human beings is emotion. And the only way we can bridge our vast discrepancies in experience is through what we feel. Let us be humbled in the knowledge that one may never fully understand the interior lives of others, but let us continue to care. Have you found life to be hard? So has Paul. And what I think we can take from this is the fact that if Paul found the contentment of God in a jail cell, then you and I can find the contentment of God here and now today. To illustrate this point, I want to tell you a story that took place a few months ago at Joshua Tree National Park. A few friends and my family went out to Joshua Tree and we parked at Indian Cove Campground and set up camp for the night. My son, Bodhi, who is two years old, was very excited. He kept pointing at the rocks and saying, Daddy, big rocks, big rocks. And he spent the entire day walking among and climbing to the best of his two-year-old ability, the rocks that shaded our campground. We ate a fantastic haystack dinner, and then all of us retreated to our separate tents to try and put our kids down for the night. We set up Bodhi's crib in our tent, and we started singing him some songs to try and encourage him to go to sleep. But as we were singing, the sky got darker and darker, and eventually the stars started to come out. And I don't know if you've been to Joshua Tree National Park, but the stars at Joshua Tree are fantastic. So fantastic that my son, who we thought was being lulled to sleep, stood bolt upright and pointed a finger to the sky and said, Daddy, look, stars. 
And my son was overwhelmed by the amount of stars in Joshua Tree because he'd never seen stars like that before. After all, my son has grown up in Redlands, California, which is not the starriest place on the planet. And my son stood there with his mouth agape, pointing at the stars, continually saying like, look, daddy, look. And he'd point to more and more stars and he'd say, I found it. I found it. At one point, he got mad at my wife because he wanted to take the stars home. And Kimmy said, well, we can't. (laughs) He was furious. He loved the stars. And I kid you not, for 20 minutes, he stood in his crib just soaking in this magnificent sight. And my wife and I looked at him and we talked about this moment later. We've never seen the look of wonder on anyone's face like we did that night on my son's face. 20 minutes. Well, eventually we got Bodhi to calm down. We got him to go back to sleep. And we walked out of that tent high on life. We sat around a campfire with our friends underneath these stars. We were looking up and we were telling each other about this moment of my son discovering the wonder of God's creation. And this moment at Joshua Tree was a perfect moment for about 15 minutes. When all of a sudden our neighbors next door pulled out a giant boombox, began playing music very loudly, And then they pulled out a light array, turned it toward the rocks, and turned on the light array so that the rocks all around us were now dancing in artificial moving lights. A dance party was unfolding at the campsite next door, and we didn't feel like we were invited. (laughs) Now we thought... Okay, we'll be the cool neighbors. We'll tolerate this and allow it to go. I'm sure they can't dance all night, right? Now, we couldn't see anybody dancing, but we could hear the music like it was right in our ears. And we could see the light show going all over the place because it would often catch our own eyes. So after an hour and a half, we said we can't take it anymore. And Andrew Silvestri, my friend, went over to confront the campers next door to ask them to shut down their dance party. But when he walked up to their campsite, he did not find a dance party. He found the moving lights, and he sure found the music that was blasting loud noise all over the national park. But what he found there next to those two things were six middle-aged men who weren't dancing. Instead, they were sitting on chairs, and they were all looking at their phones. Now, before we go any further, I want to be very clear about something. I am not judging the fact that these people are on their phones, but I am judging them. And the reason I am judging them (laughs) is because there was some conversation between these men where they said, let's go to Joshua Tree National Park together. And they all agreed. Now, why do you go to a national park? At some point, it's to reconnect with nature, right? Otherwise, there's no point in going to a national park. So they started talking about their plans for going to a national park, and there was this fear that the national park wouldn't be entertaining enough, that they would arrive at the gates of the park, get inside, and feel this existential despair, that they were bored 
or discontent inside the park. So a friend said, don't worry, don't worry. I've got an idea. If we feel like we're bored, I'm going to bring this amazing piece of modern technology, a boombox, and I'll place it in our campground so that way we can listen to music to make sure that we don't fall into the pit of discontent. Now it's here that I assume the friends said to each other, that's right, if we have music, then we can be content in a national park. But one of these friends thought to himself, that doesn't sound like it's enough. It doesn't sound like it's enough to be in a national park with a boombox. We need to assault more senses than just one. I'm going to bring my moving light array and light up the rocks, and we're going to have a light and music show like you have never seen in a national park before. Now, it's here that the friend said, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to go to a national park, and we're going to have such a good time with lights and music that we won't find any kind of discontentment out in that park at all. But what the friends don't tell each other is they're going to charge their phones because they're worried that the lights and the sounds and the national park just won't be enough. And when they arrive at the park, sure enough, they talk for a little bit, but then they're bored with the park. They find the music to be annoying and the lights just aren't that thrilling. They also look at their friends and they say, well, I mean, we've talked about all we can talk about. And they all pull out their phones and look at people's Instagram, I assume, of other people who are trying to tell the world that they are content. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because we're talking about if Paul can find the contentment of God in a jail cell, then the truth is that you and I can find the contentment of God here and now today. And we have a hard time believing this, and it seems like it should be so much easier to find this contentment underneath the stars at Joshua Tree than in a jail cell. And sometimes we find the exact opposite to be true. Well, why is that? And how is it that Paul can write the words, I have learned to be content with whatever I have, when Paul is in a very discontenting situation? Well, for that, I'd like for us to move to Zen philosopher Alan Watts, who once was describing the universe, and he said, the universe at its core is playful. And the universe is best understood by analogy with music. For instance, he says, you don't ask someone to go work the piano. You ask someone to go play the piano. And rather than thinking about life as some journey or destination that we finally arrive to, he says, we miss the point the whole way along. Life was a musical thing and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. To give weight to this idea, imagine for a moment that I tell you, I love the band Coldplay. I bought us tickets. Now, I don't know how you feel about Coldplay, but you decide you're going to go with me because you know that I love Coldplay. So we go down to the Rose Bowl. We pay for parking. We go through just enormous security lines. We finally get to our seat, and Coldplay takes the stage, and I am elated. 
so elated that I take a selfie of me at Coldplay and then I turn to you and I say, I got what I came for. Let's go home. You look at me and you say, what? They just started. To which I would say, but we saw Coldplay. That was the whole point, wasn't it? And you'd say, no, 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 Craig, come on. The point is to enjoy the music, not to just post on Instagram that you did this. <laughs> and to treat Coldplay as a destination is not to be a fan at all, but to be more obsessed with myself than with the actual enjoyment of the music. But Christians are much better at talking about life and the universe and what God would have for us with the destination, which is heaven. And what we sound like are not people who have fallen in love with the creation that God has given us and the existence that God has gifted to us. But instead, what we sound like is people who are driven by our ego and self-preservation. We're people who would prefer to just drive to the Coldplay concert and take a picture of ourselves rather than dance and sing and enjoy each new song that we hear. I grew up in an evangelical Christian denomination, and we were told that if we wanted to find the contentment of God, that contentment that Paul writes about in a jail cell in Philippians, all that we needed to do is to study the Bible. If we could just study the Bible more, then we would find contentment. Not only that, but we were also told that to dance was a sin. And anyone who wasted their time dancing would ultimately find that it was a pursuit of emptiness because dancing isn't the point. Bible study is the point. So the tradition told me as long as I throw myself wholeheartedly into the Bible, then I will find contentment. Which is really fascinating because a few years ago at Paradox, we invited my Old Testament professor, Dr. Waneel Kim, to come and speak on the book of Leviticus. Waneel Kim is a scholar, and he has forgotten more about the Bible than I have ever known. This is a man who travels around the country going to Bible conferences and arguing about the most obscure corners of the Old Testament. This is a man who knows what each of the books in the Old Testament represent and why they are important. This is a man who can talk about the inspiration behind the words and why it matters. And when I think about the people in my life who know the Bible better than anyone else, Dr. Waneel Kim is in the top five of people who have studied the Bible the most. Which is really fascinating because when he came and spoke at Paradox, he was speaking about Leviticus and all of the intricacies that go into these words and these rules and these regulations. And all of a sudden he told an aside story where he began talking about regrets. And he said in front of all of us on the stage of paradox that he had one real big regret in his life. And that regret was this. He never learned how to dance. This confession of regret was very moving to me because when you ask the question, what is dancing? Religion often talks about how Dancing is a distraction or a worldly pleasure that is not worth pursuing. But when you think about what dancing is at its core, dancing 
is the ability to express emotions that are worth expressing. To be able to feel and share sorrow and joy and delight and happiness and uncertainty in ways that words can never quite adequately communicate. But the foundation of every great dance is joy. And I think in the same way, when you consider Paul living in a jail cell, writing about being content in every situation, you have to look at the entire life of Paul and understand how many times he's been betrayed and realize that there's this thread, this baseline, this foundation of joy that is found at the ground floor of his existence. And when you look at him traveling across the world over these three different missionary journeys where he was betrayed and was beaten and was sold out by people who he thought were his friends, he looks back at all of it from this jail cell and does not write about his bitterness in life, but instead writes this essential contentment that talks about how there is no life that he'd rather leave. And when we consider Philippians 4.13 and the letter of Philippians and what Paul's ministry actually was, I believe that it's a testimony that we can find contentment in this broken existence. Yes, there is heartache. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is pain. And to that, I will say, I'm sorry. It is an awful thing to live through the pain of our broken existence. But you are not alone. There are other people who can empathize with you. And the people who have been through very similar things that you are going through whisper to you, you can still find contentment in this existence. You can find joy if you keep going. And you may respond by saying, that's impossible. I'm experiencing too much pain. There is no way anybody can piece this world back together for me. How on earth do you expect me to do that? And from the dirty, dingy jail cell, the Apostle Paul says to you, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. My brothers and sisters, may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all of this broken existence. And may you find contentment in all circumstances. Mm-hmm.